Welcome to the Outdoor Country Talk Podcast, hosted by Jacob Poole and Jeremy Shaw, where we bring country living and the great outdoors together. Welcome back to another episode of Outdoor Country Talk with Jacob and Jeremy. Now, folks, today it's just going to be myself, Jacob, and my guest, Mr. Kim Shira from Show Me Birds in Kansas. Mr. Kim, how are you today? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. How you doing, Jacob? Boss man, we are doing good. I have been looking forward to this because, as you and I have both said in the past, you can talk a lot. So I knew <laughs> I, I knew I had a captive guest that would be able to fill all the airtime that we needed. So <laughs> I'm doing good. I'm like you. a I'm like a preacher without a church. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well. You say that, but you kind of have a church, not not in a church sense, but you have a uh, yeah. You have a domain that is yours, and you get to do all the visiting and talking and sharing the memories and creating the memories that that you could possibly ask for. I believe. I've been told that by many local churches. Matter of fact, I've had 133 people baptized in my front yard and a lot of them call it the show me birds ministry and the show me birds hunting resort <laughs> i've heard both so. <laughs> well that's phenomenal how did that ever come out well that's all part of the story um it's uh it's been quite a ride it started in 1977 i was uh just a dumb old country boy had a uh, never made an a in my life except in p.e my mom said, and I finally found the grade card, found out my mom was telling the truth. I found a grade card with P.E. and the only A I ever made in my life. So definitely a dumb old country boy. But uh, it was it was quite a ride. I was in the right place at the right time and killed a, a Boone and Crockett whitetail in 1977 up in Minnesota. And uh, that got me sort of wrote up in a little magazine. And that caught the attention of a hunting consultant company out in Las Vegas. And as the story begins, and, and again, I, I apologize if I do numbers and things. I, I've been a believer that numbers make a difference in, in what you're doing. And as John Wayne said, it's not bragging if it's fact. And I'm not a bragger. I'm not a boaster, but for some reason, God just blessed me with what, what rides you're about to hear. But, um, Again, we're, you know, we're shot this big white tail, wrote up in a magazine. This guy calls me and says, Hey, would you sell hunts for me? And this was again, 1977, 78. So I was a young man and married at 17. And wow, I get to sell hunts for a living. Yeah. Working in a body shop. That's not much fun, but selling hunts was a lot of fun. So here we went and he, I worked with him for about a year. And unfortunately found out he was a crook and was embezzling all the money I was sending him. But the joyful part of all that, I learned how that business operates and started my own company, Midwestern Hunting and Fishing Consultants, and the ride began. And uh, it grew and grew and grew, and God blessed me through all that. Towards the end of it, in 1990, I had 156 outfitters under contract that I was making a living for, selling hunts for. That's a lot of pressure. That is a lot of pressure. Yeah. 
the blessed side of all that, because of that business, I'd made 196 trips around the world big game hunting. I'd go to Africa a month at a time. I mean, uh, it was it was a, a dream for anybody that's an outdoorsman, anybody that's a hunter, to be paid to travel around and inspect hunting camps before you sell for them and, and then go hunting and I've got three trophy rooms and blah, 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 and all that kind of stuff. So that business blossomed and turned into a gigantic operation, and now it's 1990. And I'm at the Safari Club convention in Las Vegas, Bally's Hotel, and the first Gulf War broke out. We thought it was World War III. Many of you listening to this can remember that time. You know, it was... It was a big deal, and it hit exactly when the Safari Club convention was going on. So downstairs in the convention hall, nobody was there. They were all in their hotel rooms watching TV. So like 9-11 when that happened, same same deal. And you can't blame them. Everybody's wanting to see what's happening. But for me to support that many families, and I'm in the convention hall with just the exhibitors, it was it was nerve-wracking, to say the least. I ended up spending an entire day in my hotel room. Uh, cried till I dehydrated myself, had a uh, nervous breakdown. To this day, I can't wear a ring or a wallet and anything like that. It's just a, just nervous. How am I going to support these people? And I thought to myself, how can I stay in the hunting industry but not have to, and I say have to because people listen to this, that you poor thing, have to travel all over the world hunting. Uh-huh, poor baby. <laughs> yeah. Most guys are shaking their head like, are you serious? Yeah, this is for real, guys. I can do bird hunts. Stay home. Be with my kids. They're growing up on me. And just sell bird hunts on my dad's little 80-acre farm here. And then maybe do some side jobs. I'm tired of traveling the world. And that's 1990, came back, and the idea of Show Me Birds began. And that first year... We dog trained and stuff, just getting their feet wet a little bit. Had about 50 peasants. (laughs) Second year, went up to 1,200. I can still remember to this day my dad laughing at me. Son, there is no way you can kill 1,200 pheasants in one hunting season. You're going to be giving pheasants to every neighbor that we got. (laughs) I said, Dad, you don't understand. You don't understand. I've been in the hunting industry now for years. You've been an auto build mechanic, you know, and I worked for you when I was a kid and all this. I said, Dad, just hold on and let's see what happens. And that 1,200 birds over a period of time grew and grew and grew to be 70,000 pheasants in a hunting season. Largest in the United States. Little did he know that a lot of days you probably go through 1,200 a day. Oh, yeah. Yeah, easy. Yeah. There's a, well, we do a thousand bird European shoot, which we do quite commonly, and tack in 200, 250 birds on a field hunt. Exactly. Yeah. I have countless weekends that we'll do uh, 2,000 to 2,500 pheasants a weekend now. And he was worried about 1,200 over a full season. Well, you do have to look, you do have to think, Mr. Kim. Your first year, you you had fifty, so fifty to twelve hundred is a pretty astronomical jump, especially for something that's new that he didn't understand to begin with. So it's a, I, I can see his concern oh, yeah. there. I mean, you know, as a father, I would be concerned about my kids, you know, maybe getting off too far. But yeah, you you definitely definitely put it. 
put the show on. I've got a picture of him hanging in the clubhouse right now. You've seen it. And I can remember holding his hand on his deathbed it's in 20, 2006. And he had tears in his eyes. He's holding my hand. He looked at me and he said, son, I'm so sorry for holding you back. What would you have done if I just got out of the way? <laughs> I said, I don't know, daddy. <laughs> I said, I don't know. But you have those moments in life where it's kind of difficult when the dad works for the son. It was my, the hunting was my business. Again, he had a body shop and garage and, you know, it was quite a, quite a deal for me to tell him what to do. <laughs> Think about that a little bit. Oh, but, Mr. Kim, I had the opportunity years ago. My daddy was talking about possibly coming and working with me and I'm like, no, sir. I, I love you, but <laughs> we do better as father and son, not boss and employee. And he's like, well, well, I wouldn't be your employee. I'm like, well, yes, sir. That's there. There's our first problem. <laughs> Cause yes, you would. If you're on my payroll, you are my employee. So, uh, oh, it's, it's you know, hard. It's very hard. I would have to suggest it things we needed to do, not say this is what I want doing. Uh, so yeah, it would it would have definitely been a a, a different ball game. Well, and, you know, he was raised in Baxter Springs, Kansas, our little hometown, and you know, a big deal to him was to drive fifty miles <laughs> to Springfield, Missouri, or something like that. I mean, he just never went anywhere. That whole generation was that way. All they did was work and stay home and. And so for him to, to go through all that countless times, I'd say, Dad, you don't understand. You know, I've been all these years in the hunting world. I know the hunting industry is what I've done, but I need to slow down. I need to stay home with you and, you know, just back away. And, of course, he owned the, the first 80 acres we were hunting where the European course is now. Well, that's a perfect example. I went to Spain uh, hunting red stag with some clients and did a European shoot, came back and started our European program years ago after i'd gone to spain and saw how they do it in europe he didn't see that you know he didn't he didn't comprehend that matter of fact he laughed his socks off and uh i don't know if you remember riding the hunt wagon like they do in scotland and england and it takes you down to our first shooting station there's a pile of railroad ties a sign hanging above it and the hunters every day we go down there sit on that hunt wagon and look at that pile of railroad ties and i have a sign jr's railroad ties my dad's name was jr ask him so they'll come up and ask me, and I, well, I got back from Spain, <laughs> I'm driving sticks in the ground down in this creek bottom, just timber, you know, with two creeks going down through it, and he came down on a tractor weaving between the trees, there wasn't any road or anything back then, and he said, what are you doing? And I said, well, I just got back from Spain, I'm going to do this and this and this, he started laughing, and drove away. He came back about 30 minutes later and he had those railroad ties. They're all cut in two. They're about half the normal length of a railroad tie. And he started building this little hut out of railroad ties. And I walked up with him and said, what are you doing? He says, you're never going to shoot any pheasants down here in this creek bottom. I brought these little railroad ties here. We'll make a, a house for them cottontail rabbits, and we'll come down here and shoot bunny rabbits. We ain't going to shoot no pheasants in this creek bottom. <laughs> <laughs> I've told every one of my employees over the years, if you ever move those railroad ties, you're going to be fired on the spot, boys. There's one thing you don't do is touch Daddy's dream right there. <laughs> and countless times he reminded me how how dumb he was for putting them down there. Some years we go through thirty five to 40,000 pheasants in that creek bottom, Daddy. You missed on that one. <laughs> <laughs> well, he didn't quite know the whole plan, did he? No, no, no. Really... Nobody did. You had to, you had to travel in this world. You had to walk in these shoes to, 
to see what I saw because of that first hunting business and and come back with all this vision and and uh, even my, some of my employees we went up on a hilltop on one of the farms I leased at the time and we had a 700 bird European shoot and the birds just were crazy and my employees got like 125 birds out of 700 and they were all laughing said we had no idea if you give the bird the advantage how much fun this can be this is amazing and i said well that's what i saw in spain why do you think i'm bringing it to america and starting to do all this you know and i got pictures here in the office of thousand bird european shoots we do that you know 39 40 cases of shells 9750 shells on another one so and, you know, the birds got the advantage. It's different kind of bird hunting than what a lot of guys comprehend. And, oh, my word, it's just uh, people just get <laughs> so so amazed on something so unique that it would be like that. So well, and that's just the European side, not counting the field outside of it with the bird dogs. Well, Mr. Kim, before we go too far into this, kind of back up just a second. Now, when you were doing Midwestern hunting and fishing, that was before the Internet. That was before all the social media and stuff that we have now. How were you advertising or how were people finding you to be able to, you know, send hunts out to 130-something guides? I mean, you, you had people all over the world that you were doing outfitting for or organizing hunts for. How were people locating you? How did y'all do that back then? Mainly, most of it was hunting shows where I learned to talk. And <laughs> you've already figured that out. I don't think you've ever had a problem uh, most, there. <laughs> <laughs> most of it was hunting shows. Again, we didn't have the internet. I remember my first website at uh, showmebirds.com. I remember that very well. I'm thinking, this is a waste of time. Hunters aren't going to be looking at a computer. You know, I didn't even think about cell phones, you know, back then. Hunters, you know, that's 30 years ago. Hunters, we started showing many birds in 1990. Whether, you know, it's it's uh, post office, mailing out information, developing a mailing list, and 90% of it was hunting shows. I'd travel all over going to different hunting shows. People would walk up to my show booth. Where do you want to go? Well, I want to go elk hunting in Montana. No problem. I got five outfitters there. I've already been there. Here you go. Tell them all the information. Where you want to go? I want to go to Africa. No problem. South Africa, Zimbabwe, Tanzania. I've been to all of them. Where you want to go? So when they walked up to the booth, I had everything they wanted. With 156 outfitters, any kind of hunt you wanted to do, I had it. I've been there. And um, so that's where it all started, learning how to talk and sell hunts and then turn around and start showing me birds in 1990 and trying to slow down a little bit Why selling a pheasant hunt was so easy compared to selling a grizzly bear hunt in Alaska. <laughs> I mean, there's nothing to this, you know, so it was kind of a more stay home type thing and eliminate all that pressure. Support myself and not support all these outfitters. that They, they got so dependent on you. Don't go to hunt and show myself. Kim will sell it for us. Mail him a commission. That kind of mentality took over everybody. And so when that Gulf War hit, all these people were, you know, I bought a new truck. I leased new property. I built a new clubhouse. All that pressure was on my shoulders, and that's why I had the nervous breakdown. I just want to support myself and not this huge portion of the hunting industry was what was hitting me between the eyes. Well, and the, and good, that first, the good thing there, Mr. Kim, it sounds like you had a, 
you had the experience, you had the knowledge in the hunting industry, and you already had a clientele base or list of names, you know, of, of hunters, people who actually got out and spent money, tra- like to travel. So, so you had a, a leg up on starting instead of just starting cold turkey and, you know, just deciding, hey, out of the blue, I want to, I want to start something. You had a, you were a few steps ahead, I guess you could say. Yes. I'd already been sort of self-trained. I still have the office at my house up above the garage. There's a 50-foot office up there with mounts and things in it. Filing cabinets full of all these outfitter papers. I actually went up this summer with and uh, cleaned it out <laughs> with a storage room for the past many, many years and pulled the window out, pulled the dump truck up next to it and started throwing old pictures and old brochures. Everything was on paper back then. And uh, I still kept some of it that had special memories and things. I've got maps of the world, and I've got little dots on the maps of all the different places I've been so I can look at it and see what life I had back then and all that type of deal. So some of it's still there, but I just mainly cleaned it up. But it was fascinating to me to see how, like you just said, how Internet, cell phones, you know, command our lives now. Back then, it was, you know, go to the post office every day. They loved me at the post office. Oh, I oh, bet my so. Yeah, you were buying uh, enough stamps and postcards to, <laughs> to cover. <laughs> I was mailing out flyers every day for to different people. And, you know, once I got them working with me and buying their hunts with me, well, they've already shot an elk in Montana, so why don't I promote moose hunting in British Columbia? You know, and I'll send them a flyer about moose hunting. So that, that was sort of my feeding, you know, getting them started on their next animal and their next date. You know, where do you want to go? And uh, so I had quite a client base, exactly like you just said. So starting Show Me Birds was kind of like a hobby in the mind. But, you know, Kim's not selling big game hunts anymore. Let's go hunt pheasants with him, you know. And that helped start the seed of, of this all growing so fast. Um, well, that's... 1,200 pheasants, you know, grew to 70,000. And I would say probably we built the clubhouse 20 years ago in 2000. And it was a very strong bird hunting operation in the late 90s. But it took, you know, six or seven years to get it to where all employees could quit their jobs, come to work for me full time, all that type of deal. And we started building flight pens to raise all these birds. When you have commercial hunting operation, nature can't do that. There's no way nature can do 70,000 pheasants in one location. So I started my own genetic bloodline of birds, my own feed program. I have pictures of it here in the clubhouse. You may have saw it, but mm-hmm. our own feed mill. Basically, it's like white-tailed deer in Texas. That's genetics and nutrition. I took the same thing with pheasants, genetics and nutrition, and got a pheasant to go from here to out of gun range in three to five seconds. Got a pheasant to do a European shoot, fly over 20 shooters, 45 miles an hour, 30 to 90 yards in the sky, and go through 9,000 shells in three hours. That's a moving target, boys. <laughs> when you've got a bird that can create that type of environment and, and 60, 70% harvest because the birds are so fast and just such as this nature sporting place course is what has been called countless times. But to go up to 70,000 pheasants, it took a major labor force. All my men worked so hard. You know, we had six and a half miles of flight pens at the end of all that production. Our hatchery hatching my pheasant was hatching 25 to 28,000 pheasant chicks every Tuesday. Uh, we had our own 
17 brooder houses and buildings, and then I started buying more land. One farm wasn't near enough, and we expanded to six farms. So now we take 12 groups in a, a day. And so all these different lands. Dad had that first 80 acres, but Kim's got the other five farms, you know, type deal. And uh, <laughs> so it sort of grew and grew to the numbers that we are. And that was wonderful. Again, God bless me with the second highly successful hunting business and why to this day I don't have a clue. So not worthy of that. But that comes with a problem. When you own a business that's open 150 days a year, seasonal business, and your overhead is around $900,000 a year, think about that. Here came that stress again. <laughs> I'm not laying in a hotel room in Las Vegas with stress. I'm at home looking at these numbers with stress, and it's 22 days were lost this year to bad weather. That's a lot of stress. And uh, it was about six years ago, 2014, yeah. 2014, well, I had to take me to the hospital and seven medical problems. The world I loved was biting back, as the doctor said. When a doctor walks up to the hospital bed and gives you a hug, he just took out half your colon and says, slow down or pick your funeral home. I love you and I love what you do out to your resort. But he had tears in his eyes. His name's on my member's board to this day. And you've got to make some changes. So right about then, I decided this gets really interesting, boys. I need to retire. I need to sell this place. And my wife loves Branson, Missouri, Table Rock Lake. We loaded up and went down to Branson three times with a realtor, found the house that she wants. I'm going to sell the resort, move to Branson changed my life. She made me promise I wouldn't become a fishing guide. <laughs> <laughs> so here we, she found the house that she wanted, came back home. I said, this is Sunday night. Six years ago, I said, uh, you call the realtor in the morning and buy that house in Branson. I'll call the realtor in Wichita that thinks he's got a buyer for Show Me Birds Resort. Seriously? And I said, seriously, I'm done. I've got seven medical problems ulcers and colon and falling off horses in Alaska and chased by lions in Africa, being almost killed six times. My back is twisted like a tornado twisted a tree. I got five discs out of my back. One doctor says, I don't know why the man's not in a wheelchair. I walked twisted sideways, greeting hunters in the parking lot. All this was going on, so I, I just can't deal with the pain anymore. I carry a fishing tackle box full of pills to cover the different problems. So I go to sleep that night, back to my story of Branson, had a vision. Aaron Williams standing in a pavilion with a gazebo, fountain, and three white crosses all lined up behind him. I have pictures of this now, but that was the vision I had. Three times in one night I woke up. Claudette said, you've been up all night. My wife said, you've been up all night. What in the world? And I said, I don't, I don't know. I, so I called Aaron, come to find out he's a, a minister. And he said, you had a vision. Can I come down and talk to you? I didn't even know who he was. Okay, so you had book. a vision of somebody you didn't even know? Yeah, yeah. Found him in the phone book. Yeah. He's like my son now. <laughs> but back then, you know, he comes down. We have a barbecue. 
and he, there's eight people there. Some of my family members are there and another pastor that was there. And I said, Hey, I never took time to go to church. If there was, if I was at church, there was a wedding or a funeral. I'm not bragging. It's just poor me always working. I just never had that life. I wasn't raised in church and I just never took the time to do it. I'm wrong. I understand that. But here we are. So we all had supper. We form a circle in what I call the North American room. Eight people on their knees on the floor holding hands. Aaron says a sermon, beautiful prayers. And he looked at me and said, Kim. And I said the first prayer I've ever said out loud in my entire life. Tears in my eyes. They all stand up and I fall face first on the floor. My legs are paralyzed. They look at me, and Aaron said, what's going on? I said, I can't feel anything. He said, you were trembling. I was holding you up. I said, I know. He said, why didn't you say something? I said, I can't. We were all praying. So he laid hands on me, him and eight people, and prayed for 20, 30 minutes. Just amazing. That guy's just amazing. Pulled me into the recliner, and I sat there for about a day and a half. Finally, I started feeling my legs again. Enough, I could get up and barely make it to the bathroom. And he said, uh, "You've had a vision." And I said, "What am I? What? I can't sell this business. I got to build what I saw." So when you come to my hunting museum here at the clubhouse, I've got a picture of you standing there. There's a pictures of all this, and I built the pavilion. It seats 150 people. The gazebo, the fountain, the three white crosses that built everything that was in my vision. And that was six years ago. And now church groups, nursing homes, wounded warriors, uh, autistic children, anybody comes out there and uses that facility free of charge. And come to find out, Aaron owned a D6 Caterpillar bulldozer. He's a pastor that owns a bulldozer. Yeah. <laughs> so now I live on an island in Kansas. <laughs> and you've seen it. <laughs> I have seen it. I have been to this location. The crazy thing, I, this story gets is crazy. I have people in tears coming here in the museum to see all this. But the first pond that he starts building, it was 2014. We had a drought that time. And he says, I hope you see this thing full. And because he asked me, how deep do you want it? I said, as deep as you can go. How big do you want it? As big as you can go. So he, he says, you need a well. I go to the Yellow Pages, well drilling company, call this guy, comes out the next day, $25,000, dollars for a well in my location. I swallow great big and I said, well, let me think about that a little bit. The next morning, my phone rang. My name's Chris. I live in the Osho, Missouri. I drill wells for a living. I hear you need a well, and you're going to do some amazing things with this place. I said, Chris, that was yesterday. How did you hear such a thing? I was at McDonald's, and I heard some guys talking. What? So, come on up. He comes up, looks at the property, and he said, normally it's twenty-five, thirty thousand dollars $30,000 for a well. I'll do one for $12,000 for you, half price. I just feel like I want to be a part of this. I said, get your drill. His drill turns out to be a semi. Ten stories high. I mean, this guy's got equipped, oh my word. 
and he starts drilling at 355 feet. He calls me on the phone, get up here quick. I thought he'd been hurt. I run up there. He pulls a big lever. Water boils out. He has a styrofoam cup in his hand, and he said, look, we hit the Ozark Aquifer, and he drinks the water boiling out of the ground. I said, what is the Ozark Aquifer? He said, it's an underground river that feeds Table Rock Lake. You didn't move to Table Rock. It's under your land. And shows it to me on his cell phone. Really? Yes. Yes. From that time, we kept building ponds, crystal clear Ozark spring water. You can see it on our website. You'll see pictures, aerial photographs. It's crystal blue. Most people say it looks pretty real on Table Rock. But it's not a Kansas farm pond by any way, shape, or form. You can see the pictures. And as he built these ponds, he built the first pond and a 35-foot waterfall, took it into the second pond, another waterfall, took it into the crappie factory, and another pond. Yeah, I flip the switch now, and this well fills up everything with Ozark spring water. Then we brought another big pump that pumps it to our European course, which has three big, nice ponds on them. They're not big, but nice ponds. And they're all filled up with Ozark spring water. We shoot off Fantasy Island. We shoot out of a goose pit and all this kind of stuff. So that one well feeds five different major ponds on either the what I call the summertime part of everything for the church groups or the hunting side. We have a baptism where you walk out between two angels at the pavilion and uh, <laughs> had 133 people baptized so far. And the cool thing, the first pastor that ever spoke a trumpeter swan flew over his head and landed beside us. 25 people witnessed it. Yeah. The next year, we had four churches out for sunrise service. The highest, most of the trumpeters, there was 14 reported sightings in Kansas that year. Most endangered species there is. The next year, four churches, sunrise service, Easter Sunday. An osprey, the second most endangered species, flies over in front of all these people above the fountain in front of the gazebo and crosses and circles us four times. The following year, Aaron, who built all this, decides he's going to have a baptism. He comes out. First, we had countless baptisms. He finally came out to do one. He said, you're too busy for me. He didn't want to bother me. He said, get out here. I built this because of you. Get out here and have a baptism. Two people's going to be baptized. As he starts to speak, another swan flies over his head in front of 50 people. Two people were going to be baptized. 17 were baptized that day. Really? Then, yeah, the final bird of this church, what I call the church, there's a hunting talk and a church talk. Right now I'm on the church talk. I go around and send pastors to Israel that don't have the money to go. Small town churches devote their life to their church, but I'll never be able to go to Israel. I've been doing it for years. Went up just about six months ago, back in the middle of summer. I told my wife, I found three more pastors. Oh, they're wonderful men. They were had tears in their eyes when I told them what I was thinking about doing. I haven't invited them yet, just thinking about it. My wife's eyes get real big. I thought she was mad at me because I'd already started working on another group. And I could hear this pecking sound behind me. I'm in the North American room. And I turned, she's pointing, and I turned around and looked. And I have a picture of this. A pheasant had flew up against the window pane and is standing on the windowsill pecking the glass. I've raised birds here for 30 years. I've never had a bird fly up to my house. 
and land in front of a window and pick on the glass. I told some people at church that bird story, I call it, and an 80-year-old woman said, Kim, what's what's your problem? You named it, show me the birds, and that's what God's <laughs> doing. He's showing you the birds. <laughs> She has a very good point. (laughs) (laughs) People, listen to this. I'm not making this up. I got pictures of this, folks. I got pictures of this. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Sorry, I got off away from hunting just a little bit. No, that's that's wonderful. That's that's part of that we like to share, too. I mean, you know, people don't understand that, you know, when you're out in nature and you're out in, in what I consider God's church, you know, it's it's all around you all the time. So no, sir, you, you, you go where you want to. Well, I know we were starting to talk about the hunting side of everything, but it does tie in with it. You know, of, of why I'm still here, almost 70 years old and I'm still running this, you know, the largest pheasant hunting resort in the United States. It, yeah. Why are you doing this? It's because of what I've seen. It's because of the people that come here and you make these relationships with all these people. Um, it's it just unbelievable. They come from all over the United States. Matter of fact, for many years, Jackson, Mississippi, when the Mississippi extravaganza was going on really strong, Jackson was one of our top towns. We had so many hunters out of Jackson, Pearl, you know, Flowood, all those towns right there. We'd come down every year to the hunting show, and, oh, man, it was just one of our top areas for many, and still is, but for many, many years. It just There was somebody here from Mississippi every day. It was just common common so well that's how you wound up with us crazy things up there so yeah exactly exactly you know we get hunters from all over the country literally all over the world uh, i had hunters last year from scotland and england they come over to see how we do the european shoots i went to europe to learn how now that europe's coming over to see how we do it in america you know trying to <laughs> tweak things a little bit in their in their program you know and and every state I mean, I had hunters last week from Virginia that drove here from Virginia for a three-hour hunt. I said, guys, I said, we we wanted to hunt more, but you were already full. Well, we want to test the place. I said, okay, did I pass the test? He said, oh, my gosh. He said, next year we're coming out staying three days with you. So this is just unbelievable. I couldn't believe I drove from Virginia for three hours of hunting and turned around and drove back. <laughs> The power of the pheasant, I call it. <laughs> well, you know, the the first year that we came out with you, that was the first time I had ever seen any type of setup anywhere similar to yours. And I've, I've been all over and traveled a good bit myself. But, you know, we were told, you know, take your plug out, you know, get ready. You're going to you want to have your shells handy. You want to be where you can load and shoot just as much as you can. And it's like, OK, yeah, sure. <laughs> the second year I had a tube extension on so I could have more shells in my gun. <laughs> Believe what that old man tells you. Yeah, you want an extension on that gun. He ain't making this up. No, it's I, for think, real. I think the second year mine held either 13 or 14 shells. Uh, you know, we had, and, and the guy that was shooting in the station with me, he had borrowed my other one that held like 11. So, yeah, we were, we were loaded for, for bear, for pheasants, actually, I guess you could say that day. But yeah, the first year, I know the tip of my thumb was just about raw from shoving shells in and trying to get my gun back up so I could shoot at another one flying over. But it was like, wow, this is. And we actually upped the birds the second year, and it was like, oh, 
all right, so we're going to have more to shoot at? Oh, I'm in. Sign me up. Tell me where I just <laughs> tell me what you want me to do. <laughs> well, pheasants are so beautiful. And then my bird with his genetics and nutrition are so fast. And that beautiful bird coming over your head, it's addicting. I mean, it's, I mean, I love waterfowl. I love quail. I love all that too. Uh, but it's, one of a kind, I guess, is what you would describe to to have such a beautiful bird screaming at you, you know, cackling as they go, and and then you know the traditional field hunts we do that every you know twelve groups a day with that bird dogs like we're quail hunting down in Mississippi, you know the dogs are working in front of you and the dogs lock up on point and and you know the pheasant blows up in your face and like I said earlier they're out of gun range in three to five seconds and I mean these things are screaming at you. I mean what type of hunt do you have where the wildlife is cackling and screaming and, and up and gone and the dogs are on point and backing and honoring and it's just you know it's just so I call it pursuit hunting when I do my little guide talk every every time groups go out how different it is compared to normal hunting and again I've been a professional hunter all my life so I love all hunting I'm not putting anything down it's just this is what I put my latter 30 years of the latter part of my life into because it is so exciting and so unique compared to you know most things that you do in life it's 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 like you said it's one of the kind of experience well and mr kim walk us back through you know we we've, we've kind of been around the circle here but let's let's go back to the beginning let's go back to 1990 the first year how were you set up because I know this has transitioned and it's blossomed and you, you've probably added things and taken some things away over the years to get it to where you are now. Let's start back at the beginning. Let's go back to 1990 and that first 50 bird season. <laughs> How was the hunting? What did y'all do that year? We had uh, an old trailer house sitting back behind where the clubhouse sits now. And we had plastic chairs inside inside the clubhouse where we checked people in. It could hold about 10 people. And we thought that would be adequate. You know, if I can, I remember saying, if I can fill this trailer house up with 10 hunters each day, I'll be tickled to death. It grew, so now we had to put picnic tables outside. Oh my gosh, look at this. You know, it's just watching the little steps. An old timer used to tell me, you can't hire somebody to build a skyscraper when you're at the top. You got to hire them when you pour the foundation. They've got to be there every step of the way. Same thing here. If I had known in the trailer house days, we would end up like we did. Uh, oh, there's no way I would have believed it. There's just no way I would have believed it. You know, you just can't do 70,000 pheasants in 150 days. You just can't do 2,000 birds a weekend. You just can't do that. You know, it's not comprehensible. But, let, you know, I just had the dream that we wanted to start it, and then God took the reins, and, and here we go. So it was it was just an old trailer house, and uh, we just, more like a, most of it was like dog training. Most of the guys brought their own dogs, and it would just come use my property, and I got the birds, and, you know, the guy just walks around. It was just like fellowship hunting mm-hmm. type of thing until it finally started growing into commercial and companies entertaining here and you know i think last year we had around 400 companies entertained here you know so then it turned into more industrial commercial type thing compared to good old buddies out working their dog you know so 
every year we just kept building more flight pins and more flight pins to raise the birds. You got to have the right construction to give the birds plenty of room to exercise so they can fly like a wild pheasant. You've got to have the nutrition. You know, I can show you pictures here in the clubhouse. I had 12 locations. Matter of fact, it's almost January 1. On January 1, for 20, 25 years, I'd get in my truck and drive around 12 locations and try to get a bird count. Halfway through the season now, how are we looking on birds? You know, when you think about it, 1st of October, there's 70,000 pheasants out here eating 387 tons of feed. And you got to get that down to zero in 150 days. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking. And you got 242 hunting dogs and you got 69 tons of dog food and 71 people getting a paycheck some way, somehow here. Oh, yeah. I eliminated a lot of stress, didn't I? <laughs> <laughs> well, you actually took it and just moved it to a whole new shoulder. You you took it off your shoulder and put it all over your back is what you did. Uh, <laughs> As one of my family members said, you, you still got all the stress you've had all your life making everybody happy. But guess what? Now at least you don't have to travel around the world. You can stay home. <laughs> it's only real different. <laughs> That's very, very true. But now, Mr. Oh. You know, you you say, all right, so you had that many houses raising that many birds. That takes a lot of personnel just to manage the houses and the birds, not counting getting the feed in. And, and I don't know, were you growing your own or were you contracting out with local farmers to get the feed? How were you handling that at that time? Back then, we did a, a lot of milo production. I learned that corn was not good. It was like eating Twinkies every day. And we raised the birds on milo and soybean meal, and it grew towards I couldn't produce that much milo. And still, you know, I couldn't cut everything. I had to have hunting cover. So the farms produced, produced the food source, plus it produced the place to go hunt. So there was a compromise between the two. So as it got big, almost everything was, uh, you know, contracted out of the local co-op. Uh, I remember that one year, I think it was right around 2014, 13, when we had the big drought across the country. Why the feed was, uh, program was $1,000 a ton and 387 tons. So almost $400,000 in just bird feed. Wow. You know, just feeding, feeding that many birds. They eat like crazy. And, and, uh, so it was kind of a combine that with feeding 5,000 hunters. We were one of the only hunting resorts in history to do 5,000 hunters in a 150-day season. Well, add that, what you got to cost to feed them, and then property tax and insurance and feeding your staff and staff wages and, you know, just put a pencil to all these little things. A lot of people, well, to this day, if you come here, the third line goes clear across the clubhouse and turns and goes to the front door. And then the European food line comes out of the European room. There's two food lines at 12 o'clock noon. People lined up to, to eat, you know, their show me birds lunch, which is part of your program. And that's to this day. I mean, we do that right now. But back then, it was just inconceivable of all that feeding all those people. I remember one time my, my daughter was my cook at the time and she uh, said, Daddy, we're spending about $25,000 a year at Sam's Club. And I said, Well, that's not bad. Dad, <laughs> that's non edible food product. I said, what? Toilet paper, plastic forks, paper plates, plastic cups, stuff that nobody eats, non-edible food product. 
was that. I said, what are you spending on food? You don't want to know, Dad. <laughs> a little bit more. <laughs> a little bit more? <laughs> just, just a tad more. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, just a tad more to feed that many hunters. And, of course, they're on vacation, and the food's awesome. So guess what? They don't eat one bowl of uh, <laughs> soup or whatever. They pig out, ten desserts, all that kind of stuff. So it's it's, you know... It makes me respect, and I, I say this to everybody, business owners don't collect a paycheck. They create a paycheck. And just really cherish your business owners around the area, They're especially in today's world. They're the ones running the risk of failure. Well, just like me, now I contract my birds. When all this health issue hit me, I had to stop raising birds. And bulldozer came in, Aaron Williams again on the bulldozer, tore all the flight pins down, built these big ponds, everything everywhere. So I would not go back to raising birds. My wife was going to shoot me if I went back to raising birds. You're killing yourself for the business. So I took my genetics, my feed ingredients, my feed program, handpicked the people I wanted to have this, and you raise my bird for me. They don't hunt. They just do the bird production. I was trying to do everything from the egg to the hunt. And that's that's just inconceivable to be of that size and trying to do the hatchery, bird production, hunting all the way through year-round. Well, there's never constant. a day off. Exactly. By the time hunting quits, eggs start dropping on the ground. The cycle of nature starts all over again. Well, and if you're, so trying, giving, to, if you're trying to farm and raise part of your own food, too, then you've got yeah. equipment, you've got land, you've got weather, you've got all sorts of other factors. So, yeah, you exactly. you were just building stress up right and left, you know, like, let me find yeah. the next stressful thing. Absolutely. And and that's what a, a businessman does. You know, the entrepreneurship that's in a lot of people is I just I just want to see my idea grow and how many little shops up and down the street, places that you see, you know, uh, how many of those are successful, how many of those their dream turns into their occupation. I have a saying, never turn your never turn your occupation or your hobby, which is hunting, into your occupation. You know, it's been years since I went out just with friends and, and hunted pheasants. You know, you just you just uh, it changes your life. But at the same time you can sit and look at how many people come here on their annual trip from all over the country that can't wait to get here. Uh, it, it's so important to them. You know, to go on my pheasant hunt with my son and daughter and family and all that kind of thing. So it's not, you know, it's a blessing not to have a normal business that you're dealing with people that just love what you do, what you represent. And some of the stories I've heard are countless from different people. But the downsize is the stress that comes with, with doing all this. Try to manage all this and get it all done in a seasonal business in 150 days when you got that kind of overhead. You know, and you try not to raise prices. You want everybody to, you know, have a fair profit, but still yet pay all the employees and, you know, and try to make everybody happy can be a, a, a real struggle in the business world today. And just like everything that's going on today, I, back in April when all this virus blew up, I went and talked to my producers and I had a roundtable discussion and I said, you know, do I contract $400,000 in birds? right now because you've got to hatch them and feed them all summer so I can have them this fall 
Or do I back away and say, I just don't know what's going to happen. I'll be eating pheasant every day for the rest of my life. <laughs> what do I do? And one of them looked at me and he said, we fully understand that we're going for it. And I said, well, Dave, if you're going for it, I can't let you go alone. I'll, I'll sign the contract and hope somebody comes this fall. This was last April. And business is up 20% over normal. Everybody wants to be in the field behind bird dogs and get out of the house. And, oh, my gosh, it's just been unbelievable. On that 400,000 bird contract, I've added to that twice already, and we're just halfway into season. So it's it's been a real blessing. But you don't know. So many businesses are not telling that same story. So many businesses are really struggling. And my heart goes out to all of them because they're entrepreneurs living their dream. And they just happen to be in the type of business that is getting hammered by everything that's going on in the world with the virus. Well, cruise industries, airlines. I mean, it goes on and on and on, you know. And and here we've been running anywhere from 130 to 200 hunters a weekend. Well, and you and you take that, Mr. Kim, and you can stick with outfitters too because I've talked to a lot of outfitters all over the world and the ones that normally depend on out-of-country hunters are struggling really hard this year because they can't get folks in. You can't fly. You can't travel the way we could. A lot of the in-country, you know, here in the U.S., you know, we've actually seen this year, I talked with a guy the other day that said the hunting licenses in in the U.S. are actually up this year. Because people can't go to ball games, they can't go to restaurants and other things the way they normally would. So they're actually getting out more and getting into the outdoors a little more than they have in the past recently. So we've seen an uptick in what we thought was going to be a down, you know, downward spiral. But yeah, I talked mm-hmm. with an outfitter out of Canada the other day, and he said, you know, we're surviving, but we're doing nothing like we normally do because we can't. Because normally I would go up and hunt with him, and he's like, you know you're one of a thousand that normally come with me and I can't, he said, but we have a lot of in-country folks that normally don't hunt with us that, you know, they're actually coming out now just supplementing food or, or just trying to get out of the house more. So, you know, they're, they're making it a lot of them, but, but you're also seeing a lot of them that are really struggling too. You know, you, you think about barbershops and restaurants and, you know, bars or churches. Uh, you know, I know a lot of churches that are having trouble because they can't meet because you can't have, you know, over a certain percentage of people inside a church. Well, if people aren't coming to church, they're probably not tithing. So, or maybe they are, but it's, you know, it's a lot of things in this world that are hurting and it's it's wonderful that y'all are, y'all are having a good year because, you know, like I say, some things are doing really well and some are not. So, Absolutely. Yes. As a business owner, you just don't know. You know, you can't read between the lines and predict the future. You don't have that crystal ball. And sometimes you got to take that big step. And like in my business, you know, birds without birds, you get, you, <laughs> you might as well close the door, you know. So birds come in the spring and fall and, they're, you know, they're fed all summer. And you've got that commitment of production. And, uh so it was, you know, I can, I can see in, in my industry, I've heard around the country that, uh, you know, business is up for almost everybody in the country on the upland bird hunting side of everything. You know, I'm sure some of the other sides are struggling, but 
like you just said, I want out of the house. I'm not doing a cruise this year. I'm not going to ball games. I'm not doing this. Where's the best place to be? Behind some bird dogs in the middle of a field with three or four hunting buddies. With a smell yeah. of with a smell of gunpowder burning. That's that's social distancing, isn't it? That when is, you're walking, that is when a you're dream. Farm, you can't get no better than that. <laughs> well, that's what uh, back in March people were asking. You know, if I was social distancing, I'm like, y'all, I've been in the turkey woods just about every single morning. If I'm not socially distanced, I don't know how I can get any further from. You know, it may be one friend that's hunting with me, but other than that, it's just me and the good Lord and old goblin turkey. So. <laughs> <laughs> if exactly. I get it out there, One it was just meant to be. I had a hundred other days. So your European shoots are those shooting stations six feet apart, and I said they're sixty yards apart. Oh, okay, we're good to go then. We're good to go. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I had another one ask me the other day: Do all your dogs have mask on? And I said, Well, <laughs> I'm thinking. I hope you're joking. <laughs> you know. I said, well, if they had a mask on, they might not be able to smell very good. Well, well, that's a good point. That's a good point. That's a good point. Okay, well, that sounds fine. We'll book our trip with you. <laughs> the dog has to retrieve by sight and sound only. No smelling. That's I'm like, be... <laughs> you got to be joking. I mean, you just got to be joking. But there are some people out there that, oh. <laughs> hey, folks nowadays are... There's some different folks out there that, that didn't grow up in the country like you and I did. And I get asked some questions sometimes, and I just kind of look at them, and I'm I'm waiting for a smile to cross their face so I can tell that they're yeah. joking. And then I realize, hey, they're not kidding. Oh, okay. Yeah, let, <laughs> let me let me answer this a different way than, <laughs> than I was about to. Yeah, you don't want to reply a joke to a joke. When he's joking, you don't want to come back serious, but you're thinking, whoa. Where were you raised? Yeah, I feel sorry for your mama and daddy. They they buttered your bread too many times. I think I don't know what's going on with you. <laughs> well, Mr. Kim, let's let's do this real quick. Uh, we're we're about to run out of time on this episode, but let's stop right here where you were you were deciding whether you wanted to contract birds for this year and making that decision. Let's go ahead and stop right here, and we'll pick back up right here in just a, for the next show. But y'all. Mr. Kim, tell everybody before we close off of here, what is the easiest way for them to get up with you and find you and be able to come and enjoy what you have to offer? Well, obviously, that's since the hunting shows are pretty much down uh, by <clears throat> right now, but obviously it'd be the Internet. Um, we have a huge website at showmebirds.com. Real easy to remember that. And there's European page, field hunt page, pictures of the church groups and things that I've been describing to you and uh, all kinds of different stuff. There's like, it's like a 30 page website. It's, uh, Google says we get around 3,000, 3,500 hits a, a month on, off that website. So they say it's an enormous website for the hunting industry. So it's really been blessing for to have that. But, and then on that front page, it says book here, and you can click on a button. It sends you an email to me at the office, and then I can email back information to you. And, of course, you can always call the office as well. But it's, it's showmebirdshuntingresort.com, is that correct? No, uh, showmebirds.com. Showmebirds.com. Okay, so uh -huh. y'all, anybody out there that's looking to get up with Mr. Kim, either you can message me or go to showmebirds.com. 
And Mr. Kim, I want to say thank you for, for being on here today. And y'all, this has been another episode of Outdoor Country Talk. Thank you and God bless. Well, ain't nothing like a southerner. Lord, to make you feel all right. I got the windows down. I got the radio on. I got the music crank way up.